the Slaughter in May podcast. Hello and welcome to the first in a new series of Slaughter in May podcasts looking at key topics for employers in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name's Claire Fletcher. I'm a professional support lawyer in the employment team here at Slaughter and May. And I'm Pori Cronin, one of the partners in the firm's employment team. Today's podcast focuses on employee health and safety. We'll begin with a brief overview of the legal landscape before looking at some of the COVID secure workplace guidance. We'll then move on to look at some of the more difficult areas for employers to navigate in practice. I should say before we go any further that this podcast is being recorded on the 2nd of July and reflects the law and guidance as it stands today. Porig, do you want to start by talking us through the legal landscape? Thanks, Claire. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is that fundamentally the the law on employers' health and safety obligations hasn't changed as a result of the pandemic, although it's, it's certainly true to say that the guidance which has been issued helps to set a baseline for what employers should be doing in the context of the pandemic in order to comply with those legal obligations. And so the legal starting point is that employers are under a duty to ensure, so far as reasonably practicable, the health and safety of their employees while those employees are at work. Now, of course, that isn't a one-size-fits-all test, which is both good and bad, I guess, but what steps are reasonable and therefore what steps need to be taken will depend on the circumstances. Things that would be relevant include the nature of the work environment, the likelihood of harm occurring, the gravity of the harm which may occur, and the costs and practicability of preventing harm also needs to be taken into account. And just to look a little more closely at two of those things, on the gravity of the harm which may occur, it's important to recognise there that some employees are potentially at greater risk than others because of their own particular circumstances. So obviously, people with underlying physical or mental health conditions will be relevant in this case, but also potentially BAME employees, given that there seems to be a disproportionate impact on BAME individuals due to COVID-19. And on the cost and practicability aspect of the um, reasonableness test, it's important to understand that you don't have to spend unlimited amounts of money to protect people from risk. It's about what is um, reasonable in the circumstances. But all that being said, if the employer fails to comply with that reasonable duty of care, then the employer can be liable in respect of physical or psychiatric injury that arises as a result, which would include COVID-19 itself and foreseeable complications arising from it. And one point I'd just add there, Porig, is that there are also a number of relevant statutory health and safety laws, for example, under the Health and Safety at Work Act, and also a whole plethora of regulations under that act, which implement a whole range of specific statutory duties uh, on employers. Yes, there are statutory obligations that require risk assessments to be carried out, uh, that require PPE to be made available, if, if that's necessary to control a risk that cannot be controlled in some other way, and also obligations to consult employees on health and safety risks and on proposed protective measures. And just on employee consultation, it's relevant, I think, to note that the employer can choose to either consult employees directly, which actually isn't often allowed in other employee consultation contexts, or alternatively to use elected health and safety reps. Although where the employer recognises a trade union, it would typically be those trade union reps that are used for this purpose. And one of the important differences between the common law and the statutory duties is that the statutory duties aren't directly enforceable by employees. They're enforced instead by the health and safety executive, and in some cases, the local authority. 
A breach of any of the employer's statutory obligations uh, will constitute a criminal offence, and that leaves it open to a range of sanctions, including prison sentences of up to two years for the directors and unlimited fines. And I think it's also just worth noting that employees have their own duties under the Health and Safety at Work Act to take reasonable care for the health and safety of themselves and of others at work and to cooperate with their employers to ensure that all health and safety obligations are complied with. And a breach of these duties by an employee is also a criminal offence. So that employee duty, I think, can be useful for employers to remember and to flag to employees when dealing with employees who fail to comply with new COVID-19 secure workplace measures that are being put in place. So those, I think, are the the key legal and statutory obligations. Claire, will you talk us through the, the government guidance briefly? Yeah, sure. So the the guidance for making workplaces COVID-19 secure was first published on the 11th of May. It has been updated a few times since. And the guidance starts by setting out five key steps for working safely. The first is to carry out a COVID-19 risk assessment, which, of course, as Proggs mentioned, is also a legal requirement. And this needs to consider what adjustments might be needed to the usual methods of working in order to minimise risks to employees' health. And as a matter of law, employers must consult employees about that COVID-19 risk assessment. I've seen the odd risk assessment on people's websites. Is that because there's an obligation to do that or...? It's not actually a legal requirement, no. Um, But as a matter of best practice, the the guidance says that employers with over 50 employees are expected to publish their risk assessments on their websites. Um, And there was a a survey done by the TUC uh, a few weeks ago of 100 companies. And as at the 22nd of June, uh, about 45 of those companies, so just under half, had made their full risk assessments public. The second point of the five-step plan is to develop cleaning, hand-washing and hygiene procedures. I think that's fairly self-explanatory and something that we're all becoming very familiar with. Thirdly, all reasonable steps should be taken by employers to help people work from home. And we'll discuss a bit later what this means for employers when deciding when and how to bring employees back to the workplace. And the fourth and fifth steps of the plan can be taken together. They're effectively to maintain two metres social distancing wherever possible. But where people can't be two metres apart, the employer needs to manage the transmission risk. And that's, I guess, where this new sort of one metre plus rule comes into play. And that's something we'll, we'll take a look at a little later on as well. Yeah, that's right. So then building on the five key steps, the government's also produced 12 specific workplace guides. And these set out some practical considerations on how to work safely. However, each business will need to translate the principles of the guidance into the specific actions it needs to take for each of its different types of workplace. Uh, This is going to depend on the size of the business, uh, type of business, how it's operated, managed and regulated, for example. Um, Just as with the legal principles you outlined, Porig, uh, one size does not fit all here as well. Uh, which brings us on to consider how the law and the guidance interact. Porik, can you talk us through the status of the guidance? Yeah, Claire, I mean, uh, as you said, the, the guidance that's been published in, in the UK, certainly in England, is, uh, is sort of less prescriptive and more flexible than you might see in some other jurisdictions. And it's expressly stated to be non-statutory, um, though it isn't law, and therefore it doesn't supersede employee, employers' legal obligations relating to health and safety. So... 
That being said, as a general principle, I think employers should follow the government guidance because if they do so, it helps to show that reasonable steps have in fact been taken and therefore that the duty of care has been discharged. Um, you know, to put it another way, I think the, the guidance is broad and because it's principles-based, um, it, it may still be relevant for people to take legal advice on their own circumstances if they think they have particular circumstances which haven't been addressed or where they haven't really got a steer from the government. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings us on to look at some of the more difficult issues that can face employers in this context. Um, I'll start with one that we've seen quite a few client queries on, and that is how long homeworking needs to continue uh, and when employers, particularly those who are office based, can bring people back to the workplace. Um, the latest version of the guidance, uh, as at the 24th of June, still clearly states that people who can work from home should continue to do so and that employers should decide in consultation with their workers whether it's viable for them to continue working from home. So what that means is it's not enough to say that it's more convenient or more efficient for people to work in the office. The test is whether homeworking is viable. If employees can work from home, they should continue to do so, and the employer should support them in doing so, at least for now. The next issue I think we wanted to do to address was the introduction of this one metre plus social distancing. Um, and at least from my own, my own perspective, I think the messaging around this has been maybe just a little bit confused. Um, there may be an impression out there that one metre plus has replaced two metres as the distance. Um, a lot of the talk here is obviously focused on pubs, which seems to be quite an important consideration in this context. But, but in any event, the, the one metre plus rule hasn't, I think, replaced the two metre rule. The guidance, which again, as Claire says, is um, as of 24 June, that retains the two metres as the primary social distancing standard, but it now allows distancing of one metre with risk mitigation, where two metre distancing isn't viable. So again, it's a question of what is viable and not necessarily what's convenient. So I think what that means is that if employers have been operating up to now with two metre social distancing, they really should continue to do so. The the benefit, if you like, of the one metre plus risk mitigation measures approach is that it may allow activities to be carried on now, which couldn't have been carried on before the one metre plus rule was introduced. But it's not a, it's not a replacement, it's a, an, additional, an additional ability, I guess. Yeah, that's right, Porig. And just to pick up on the, the risk mitigations point with the new one metre plus, um, as far as the guidance is concerned, that risk mitigation doesn't include PPE or face coverings. Um, the guidance has always been quite clear that additional PPE beyond what employees normally wear isn't beneficial, uh, that COVID-19 needs to be managed through social distancing and hygiene measures rather than using PPE. Um, and the same goes for face coverings. Uh, employers shouldn't be relying on those in their risk assessments. I think there's been quite a lot of controversy, uncertainty in out about face coverings. Absolutely. Yes. Um, my own view is that actually in some circumstances, what the guidance says actually conflicts with one of the employer's statutory duties that we mentioned earlier, um, the one to provide PPE to an employee where there's a risk to their health and safety that hasn't been eliminated by other measures. And I think that's why we're seeing quite a lot of employers going uh, above and beyond the requirements of the guidance in this respect. Uh, the CBI did a survey last month which revealed that 79% of employers are reporting an increased use of PPE. 
and to my mind, it's it's not just about what might be needed to comply with the employer's legal obligations. It's also about giving employees the confidence they need to feel safe about returning to the workplace. Yes, and I think an area where a lot of people are focused on, as you say right now, is transport um, and how employees should be getting back to work when they are getting back to work. And maybe just to start with, with the law on this, there's a large patch of grey, I think, on the question of whether an employer could face liability for requiring employees to travel to work if their method of transport exposes them to risks to their health and safety. We'll take a, a look just in a little later on about some workplace protections for employees who have concerns about workplace risks. But suffice it to say for now that the cases don't clearly exclude the possibility that travel to work is also covered there. So it is possible that travel to work is something which could give rise to a, a liability for an employer. In any event, employees who do have to travel in order to get to work are now advised to consider changing their, those travel habits. So thinking about cycling, walking or driving if they would otherwise have taken the public transport and in any event trying to avoid rush hour. The bottom line, I think, really is that public transport should be considered as a last resort because it really represents a different order of infection risk to all other types of transport, which is why I guess the government is advising against all but essential travel and mandating the use of face coverings for really all but a very limited subset of uh, people travelling on public transport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and transport is, of course, just one of a number of difficulties which may be facing employees on a return to the workplace. And that's the next issue I'd like to have a look at now. How should employers deal with those who are reluctant to return? And, and there are a number of options available. I think the first one needs to be, can the employee work from home, either in their usual job or in an alternative role? If not, is there a way to make their work in the office safer, uh, particularly in light of the workplace guidance we've just looked at? Uh, if that fails, could they be furloughed or take paid holiday or and some other form of unpaid leave? Uh, and only having addressed all of those options, should employers uh, think about disciplinary action, but we would say very much as a last resort. Yes, because I mean, there can be real risks for employers if they jump to disciplinary action too quickly. I mean, not just reputationally, but, but financially as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's important for employers to be aware that there are legal protections for employees who, who act on health and safety concerns. Uh, and what this means is that if the employer doesn't take adequate measures to protect its employees, uh, and there are therefore circumstances of danger, which this is using the statutory language, the employee reasonably believes to be serious and imminent, uh, then employees basically have the right to walk out of the workplace or refuse to return uh, or take any other appropriate action to protect not only their own health, but also potentially other people's health. And if having done that, uh, the employer takes any action which may amount to detrimental treatment, including dismissing that employee, the employer may face a claim uh, for which compensation is uncapped. So I think the key point here is for employers to make sure that any objections or concerns raised by employees are carefully managed to avoid triggering these detriment or dismissal protections. And one of the questions that comes up sort of in this context at the moment is, you know, if an employer has an employee who refuses to attend work because they have concerns about their safety or their health arising out of COVID-19 risk, does the employer still have to pay that employee? 
Yeah, I think that's a really important question because on, on the one hand, you can see that if somebody isn't working, then perhaps they shouldn't be entitled to be paid. But the law isn't entirely clear on this. I think the safest assumption is that this could give rise to a claim for detrimental treatment and that the employer might be better off thinking about some of the other options I just outlined. So potentially offering other work that could be done from home or a temporary suspension on full pay, although admittedly uh, that's unlikely to be sustainable for large numbers of employees uh, or for a long period of time. I think what we're seeing is that the more that employers engage with their employees, understand their concerns and try to address them, hopefully the, the rarer these scenarios will be. Uh, I think we'll finish with one final question, which I know we've both been asked, Porik, and that's whether employers should be asking their employees to sign waivers when they return to the workplace. Uh, and I think we have a clear view on that, Porig. Yes, in fact, I had, I had a client ask me this question on about the, the 17th or 18th of March, which was very, very early in the pandemic. And I think before the, the sort of the actual lockdown had been introduced, I mean, it's been there from the beginning. But I think the issue is that the employer's duty to protect employees' health and safety you know, cannot be contracted out of, it can't be delegated. Um, and therefore, employees can't validly sign away their rights. So any employee waiver of this kind you know, would be unenforceable. It would not, as people say, be worth the paper it's written on. Um, and in any event, the TUC and you know, individual unions are alive uh, to this question around waivers and are advising employees not to sign. The one thing we do see, I think, which is, which is not quite the same thing, is that employers uh, could ask their employees to sign an acknowledgement that they understand the measures the employer has put in place to make the workplace COVID-19 secure, that the employees understand you know, their own obligations in the context of those protective measures and that they'll abide by them. And I would say, you know, I think that is a, a sensible, practical thing to do, partly from an information uh, and real-world perspective. Um, I'm not sure it has a huge legal effect, but it's, you know, it, it's a sensible process step, I think. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you all for listening. Do look out for further episodes in this series, which we'll be publishing in the coming weeks. In the meantime, if you'd like to talk about any of the issues raised in this podcast in more detail, please do feel free to contact either Porig or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Thank you and goodbye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.